Hello and welcome to Changes. My name is Annie Mack and this is my brand new podcast where I explore the many different facets of change, how it affects us, how we confront it, how we get through it, how it shapes our lives and how we learn from it. My guest this week is one of our most treasured and brilliant pop stars. Her name is Robin. She is Swedish and she has a whole legion of really, really fiercely passionate fans across the world. She's unique as a pop star in many ways. The New York Times describes her as pop's glittery rebel. Uh, She doesn't really follow the traditional rules that a pop star follows. She always works with a small, close-knit group of collaborators, not the big or the hype names of the moment in terms of production. She always writes her own songs. She never sings anyone else's songs. She's always made very sexy music without having this overly sexualized image. And most importantly, she kind of, she has her own timetable, her own bar her own parameters of how much she will give of herself, both in terms of her time and her personal life. She is completely authentic. There's like a purity to her music, a real honesty to it. When she sings, you believe her. And when she talks, I hope you will agree when you listen to this conversation that it's the same. So we spoke about a month ago now, in a quiet morning in lockdown, her from her home in Stockholm, me from the shed at the end of the garden, and we discussed two big changes in her life. And at first glance, they're hard changes to experience, but from them both came arguably a much better life. Um, Also, there's a very fun story about magic mushrooms. (laughs) Let's hear the conversation. Enter the podcast, Robin. Robin, welcome. It's so nice to have some time with you today. Thank you for that, first and foremost. Same. Um, Where are you right now, Robin? I'm in Stockholm. Can you give us a picture? Well, I have the computer in my uh, window. Outside of my window is a bridge with people on it. They're biking and walking, like safe distance from each other. Is the sun out? It was out a couple of hours ago. Now it's a little bit cloudy, but it's not... The weather's still nice. It's been really warm and beautiful outside. Mm. I was thinking about that. Like, what would have happened if this happened in the winter? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I am I am so grateful for the sunshine at the moment. I'm just, it's really, really helping every aspect of what's going on yeah. for me. How are you finding this profound change that has happened to the world? How are you coping with the last couple of weeks? Let's start with that. Yeah, well, I was thinking about that when you kind of explained to me over email what the podcast is about then I thought well kind of like that this is probably one of the biggest changes that the world has gone through I think on so many levels like this one definitely counts although I have to say that my personal private everyday life uh, is kind of similar to what it it is in certain periods when I have time off in between records and I isolate in the studio to make music. I feel like I'm kind of in some kind of quarantine sometimes. I'm not seeing a lot of people. I'm not working nine to five. I kind of have to take care of my own time. I think a lot of freelancers understand 
that feeling of like being a little bit outside of society in some way, but now everyone's doing it. And so I feel like I'm in a way more in sync with the world than ever in a weird way. Let's get on to the the topic of this podcast. Obviously, the world is changing at large. We don't know when it's going to stop. That's just an underlying thing to this yeah. entire conversation. Yeah. But let's get more personal to you. These two moments of change in your life that are kind of the most profound, I guess. And one is in your childhood. Talk me through the, the change in your childhood that affected you the most. Yeah, well, so I grew up in a in a family. Both of my parents are working in theater and they got to know each other when they were really young. They were still in school. And so my parents were together. My, my dad is a director. My mom's an actress. And the other 10 people in the group were like friends of theirs. And so it was like a family, a big family for me. And we spent like six months every year on the road. And how would you travel around? We would go by bus. Um, okay. In the beginning, it was just like those old Volkswagen hippie buses and then it became a little bit more professional but my everyday life was very much based around my parents and what they were doing and then my parents got divorced when I was 10 Um, and a couple of years before that we moved back to Sweden permanently so that I could start school my brother was born and the theater group disintegrated because of the the government changed the rules about cultural funding in Sweden around that time. And so the theater group was canceled and then my parents got divorced maybe like a couple of years after. And so I went from this like, I would say quite fluid family, big family situation, traveling uh, with my parents, spending time with them all the time, seeing them also work together, collaborating to moving back to one's place, which was Stockholm, starting school, living in an apartment and then also my parents divorcing and their divorce was, you know, it wasn't a good divorce. They never really mended their relationship. And so they didn't have a lot of interaction. And so I think going from one extreme to the other was on, on so many different levels. It was very layered for me, really affected me as a 10 year old, you know, kids deal with things and you, you know, you, you have ways of dealing with stuff, but I think, it's something that I, yeah, that I'm still thinking about actually and seeing how, you know, how it, it kind of shaped my my experience of the world and how it also uh, planted these like feelings in me that, you know, I later on in life decided to kind of look at a little bit more and try to deprogram a little bit and so the kind of list of change there that you that you're talking about is so it's quite extreme so you've gone from this kind of nomadic lifestyle to then staying put which is itself a huge change then you've gone from going living you know living being the sole child to then having a sibling which is an also massive change right Mm. and then um having this kind of solid unit of your parents be uh in jeopardy mm-hmm. so what happened after this th- these kind of couple of years for you between seven or eight and ten what happened after that did you stay with your mom or your dad or how did it work I stayed with my mom for about a year after they got divorced and then me and my brother started staying every other week with my mom and my dad so we would 
pack our little bag and <laughs> walk over. <laughs> so he was close? Yeah, they were close, just 20 minutes away from each other. So we, mm. you know, we had a, a more local kind of uh, lifestyle then, which was great. But still, I think all, all uh, kids who have divorced parents who are not friends, because even if you are like not enemies, then it's like a big step for divorced parents to actually have, you know, a relaxed kind of relationship. And so I think all kids who have these two homes, like you, you know, you kind of split yourself up a little bit. It's very hard to integrate those two worlds and to actually, like kids can't tell their other parent, you know, what life is like at the other home. It's too complicated. You you also feel like sometimes you have to choose sides and stuff. So I think it's really up to the parents to have that kind of communication. And so I think there was like a split that happened after that. Mm. That was very, very apparent. And I think it kind of, it's not just a physical split that you have two homes. It's like a split in your personality a little bit. Now you, you've had the time in your life to look back and kind of examine what, what you were going through emotionally a bit more closely. Mm. How do you think it affected you as a, as a kind of girl going into her teens? I think that both the way I was brought up before my parents got divorced with all of the traveling we did and having a more kind of loose routine, um, everyday life routine, going to a more stable, like conventional life, but also having, you know, a very tight-knit family and then divorced parents. It's incredibly valuable, too, to have those two perspectives. Mm. I think whenever a person has two perspectives, whether it is that you have parents that are from different cultures or you might have, like, mental health issues or, you know, you might have a family where one half of it has money and the other one doesn't. Like whatever it is that you are faced with, I think it creates a very particular perspective. And I think people who has that, it doesn't, I mean, some people have it in their culture or in, you know, the way that it, you can tell, you can see it on them that they have this duality in them, which is very different from not having it as like your skin color, whatever it is, like if you live in a society where most people don't look like you or whatever. But I think that there are other ways that that can happen as well, more subtle ways. Like, And I think all people who understand that, like on different levels, have this ability to also empathize with other people who are forced to deal with a situation where people don't understand their complexities or their their norm, I think. So sure. I think it's an, it's an intelligence too. It's, it's not just a hassle. It's also a, a kind of a superpower. It's like a little bit explosive. It can create a lot of, you know, problems too if you don't understand like where that perspective comes from or whatever. Do you find that because you had this this childhood that was kind of steeped in creative expression and creative collaboration, that mm. you had this kind of innate uh, ability to express yourself just because of being around it like did you find it easy being able to be creative and express yourself in front of people from an early age yes yeah <laughs> I think but I, you know in, in a way that maybe wasn't always to my benefit 
<laughs> like like that kid who was like t- maybe a little bit too comfortable getting <laughs> up on stage you know like maybe even annoying for people i think i was like yeah um like hey I, guys you want another performance it's me yeah again. exactly like <laughs> calm down relax <laughs> yeah i think it was a little bit annoying as a kid but then i think i was also my parents kind of like you know, they raised me that way just around watching them like do stuff and create stuff and be in a creative like theater context all the time. So, so I, I think it was just like there was no I couldn't really be any other way. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think maybe they thought sh- they should have thought about that maybe a little bit more before they decided to move <laughs> back to Sweden and put me in school. And you know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there was no like a real focus on what that I think transition was going to be like for me yeah Mm. but it was one of those moments where you were performing in front of people that 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 you that you kind of experienced one of the biggest changes in that you you were discovered as such is that right when you did a performance at school yeah I performed at school and there was a Swedish pop artist there called Mia I have no clue why she was there but she was there and she saw me perform and she took my number and she put me in touch with a record label. What did and you perform? I performed a song called In My Heart. That was a song that I wrote about my parents' divorce. No way. <laughs> yeah. So you performed your own song. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What age yeah. were you? I was, I think I was 13 or 14. Wow. And I'd made the song a few years earlier and a friend of mine when I was at summer camp helped me make the music so I had this little cassette with music and I would put the cassette on and sing over it and then that led to this this kind of quite wild break right into into being a pop star mm-hmm. it seems when you look at it online that it all happened very quickly but maybe it didn't did it feel quick at the time yeah it felt quick I recorded the first album in my summer vacation between ninth and 10th grade in the Swedish school system. And um, I went back to school, but then I quit because I, it just went really well. I remember my mom wanted me to stay in school, but my dad was like, no, do this for a while and see what happens. And uh, they weren't at all agreeing there, but I'm happy that my dad was I mean, obviously, he wasn't, like, aware of what the fuck he was saying. Like, he was just, like, I don't think that he kind of knew what that advice actually meant. But yeah. I'm happy that he made me try this music thing, you know. When you look back at that time, you as a teenager, kind mm-hmm. of leaving school, again, really profound change in your life, mm-hmm. leaving that kind of... Uh, kind of strict regimented system of education and then being kind of out there in the wild west of the music industry how do you how do you look back at those times I mean there's so many different uh, angles one is you know the whole like just the, the way that the world was so different at that time you know I remember asking people like do you have email when you met someone and you know like it was like right in the beginning of just emails it was like you know calling home was not a you know was not a it's not so easy to do and it cost a lot of money so I think for my mom to let me just kind of start traveling to America when I was 17 18 like she was just like I think so so worried and scared and 
I was like more isolated than I think you would ever be now because of course I was like away from all my friends and um, I was around mostly grown-ups, like American grown-ups, very different kind of grown-ups than the ones that I grew up with in my parents' theater group. <laughs> I think I had this naive idea of, you know, that the, what I was going to do was kind of similar to what they did when I was a kid, you know, we're just going to, you know, travel around and play some music for people. And and I was basically like thrown into the center of 90s pop music industry with like Britney Spears and Spice Girls. And, you know, I was doing this like Radio 1 tour and I remember performing, you know, in all these like coastal cities, like Skegness with Spice Girls in 96, you know. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. I never knew you did that. Yeah. Backstreet wow. Boys and NSYNC, like all of those artists were on the road at the same time. So I was doing a lot of radio shows in America as well, where they were uh, with Destiny's Child as well. Like it was really a very kind of other time where there was a few artists that the major labels pushed really hard and you had to do radio promo and you had to do TV and it was full on promotion work from like nine in the morning till nine in the evening most days out of my schedule for like two years god yeah hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So you did that first album, Robin Is Here. Yeah. And then you did two more albums, end of the 90s and the start of the noughties. Yeah. And, and there was a period around there, again, that... I mean, please correct me, where things felt like they were becoming untenable creatively mm-hmm. in terms of who you're working with. Yeah. What What was the change there? What happened there? I think nothing changed. And that's, that was the problem. I think I was changing, but the music industry was very rigid. I wanted to make another kind of pop music, but it was difficult to explain what that was going to be for the industry that I was working in at the time, which was, you know, these big record companies that bought and sold each other. And so there was a period, I think, where I changed record label like three times in a year, but it wasn't because I changed record label. It was because they were buying each other. And every time that happened, you know, you get a new team and it's a team that never signed you, so they don't really want to work with your record. I think it happened to a lot of artists at that time. I was one of them that was kind of caught in between chairs and like 
nobody really knew what to do with me. Um, and then the team changed again. And, and like, so I think a lot of the stuff I was doing was just not taken care of properly. And at the same time, they also didn't want to release, they wouldn't like release me out of my contract, but they wouldn't release my album. So I was like in a hostage kind of situation. And that's when I decided to try to get myself out of this and, and work more independently. And I think I was able to do that because of how I'd seen my parents work when I was little, you know? Wow. Yeah, it was a very, very different time. A very different time. Like, you couldn't even be in the studio if you didn't know someone that had a studio, you know. It was so guarded and protected by people with connections. The whole industry was. It wasn't open and, and as democratic as it is now. So how did that go? You you kind of getting out of the web of uh, of your of your record label and then trying to start your own way and kind of of working how did people react to that you know as a young woman being Mm. like actually no I'm gonna I'm gonna just be my own boss thanks yeah I spoke to a lot of people like older male executives in the record industry in Sweden at the time who were just like yeah well this is not gonna work like what are you doing this for like it wasn't even that they were like I don't know it was just kind of silly like I remember actually thinking like oh they're so out of touch a really clear gen- change of generations. Like the- MySpace was happening. All of my friends that were making like music that were more like in an underground context were doing all these things already. So for me, it was just like, this makes it sense. This is how it's going to be. And they just didn't know yet. They seriously didn't have the information. And that's also, I think, really obvious when you look at, you know, how the music industry dealt with the downloading issues and all mm. the stuff mm. that we are working in now but it was also a really cool time it was a really cool time it was a very very difficult thing to do for me personally because I was doing something I had never done before and I was really scared of failing but I had people who believed in me and people who kind of helped me and supported me and I also to be honest had a really good situation because I was I already had made some money so I wasn't Sure. Okay. You know, I was still you had a safety a, net. Yeah. I had a safety net. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But it was scary, and it was, yeah, maybe one of the bigger changes as well, actually. And do you think that that move has contributed to how y- you have been successful in the last ten, fifteen years since since the release of the Robin album? Do you think that that is what has helped you stay relevant and stay successful? I mean, there's so many great. Seriously, I think that there's so many great people working within music in the world. Some of them work in more commercial, mainstream contexts, and some of them make music that only a special, particular group of people understand or know about. Let's talk about your second change, then, the, the change that you, you think had the biggest effect of, on you as an adult. Yeah. So I think 10 years ago, I decided to start therapy and I started because I was in a relationship that was really uh, challenging and I felt like I was like super scared of what was going to happen with my emotions. I felt super vulnerable and so I started therapy. It wasn't even a plan. I just did it as like it was some kind of instinct to understand myself a little bit better. And then after a few years, I went through a breakup and I 
I decided to up my like uh, ratio of therapy. So I was seeing my therapist and she was like, well, now that you're coming three or four times a week, you know that you're in psychoanalysis. And I was like, oh, cool. And <laughs> I started really embracing my therapy at that point. I think it's um, easier to do that when you're feeling like shit. Psychoanalysis is like a long-term thing. It's very much goes against all, you know, quick fix ideas about getting your life together or whatever. It's more about like breaking it all apart, disintegrating yourself and figuring yourself out again. So, you know, okay, so I, yeah, right. it's, it's a heavy thing, but it's also a really, really cool thing if you're up for it. So I was in therapy for six years. And wow. um, and that was kind of three or four times a week do, yeah. doing that, yeah. really breaking down everything. Yeah. And what did you, I mean, God, I mean, it must mean <laughs> so many things. That's, that's such a huge question. But like when you look at what you've been through with therapy, is yeah. there one thing that you can come out of that having learned about yourself that you had no idea about before that really that therapy helped you figure out? I feel like maybe the most important thing that I learned in therapy is to have like a calm, to, to figure out how, really how to calm myself down. Because it's like over, over six years, like you have so much time to work through things in a different way. And it's because you know you have all that time, you kind of relax into things and you start, you can go deep and all of your relationships kind of pop up in the relationship with your therapist so you have time to kind of like figure out what you do in different kinds of situations and why. It's like drawing a map over your life in a way, not like solving stuff maybe, but just like understanding it. And then that gave me some kind of new sense of calm. Uh, like, like when things get a little bit difficult, I feel calmer because I've already explored why it feels difficult it's like you know when you don't know what's underneath like if you if you if you're scared of water for example it's because you don't know what's under there because the water's deep or whatever but if you knew exactly what was under your boat it's not right. as scary you know what i mean yeah yeah so that was those kind of six years that was am i right in saying that was when you were in your 30s yeah that yeah. was be between like 31 and 37 or something like that. Um, but I'm still in therapy. <laughs> yeah. But just not as much. But yeah. 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 Do you see it as something that's kind of like, like maintenance as such, like bringing your car to, to the garage, like just something to keep you f thriving? Yeah, it's mental hygiene. Mental you, hygiene. I've never heard of that. That's really good. Yeah, it's mental hygiene. Yeah. I mean, you can do that in so many different ways. You, you know, it's like, I feel like maybe psychoanalysis is like, is like having a really mild mushroom trip for six years. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. But it's not like it doesn't have like, you know what I mean? It's like uh, you, you can learn things about yourself and figure shit out and have like get new perspectives from like a really intense uh psychedelic trip but maybe it's nicer to make it less intense and just have it you know go longer and like kind of bubbling yeah bubbling yeah yeah which reminds me that the first time i met you you were on mushrooms <laughs> oh Do no you remember? no <laughs> oh was it in la <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> was that at Dave Taylor's party? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember being on mushrooms then. Yeah. Oh my God, my bad. I remember you telling me though that you'd gone, like, I remember us having quite a serious conversation. So hopefully I was able to hold down a conversation. Oh no, you were, you but, were lovely. You were... This time in your 30s where you were kind of going through psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. um, there was quite a long period between albums for you. Yeah. And it strikes me, you know, when you look at the career of a pop star, that when you're in this cycle of kind of giving your art to people and receiving reactions and touring and doing that, it must be very hard to just literally stop being a, t- a pop star for a while, to just kind of check out of that life. Did it feel hard at the time? Was that a struggle, that part of it? When I checked out, it wasn't difficult because I really didn't feel like I had a choice. Like I felt like I was so, you know, I was going through it personally. So I just had to, I couldn't, I couldn't be on tour. I couldn't, I just had to take care of myself. But then after a couple of years, when I started feeling better, I definitely felt this enormous stress of not taking care of like my fans and like the people that had supported me. And and also, of course, these more like very, um, you know, kind of stupid but egocentric and egocentric worries about like not being relevant and how do I come back from this and will people even remember you know what I did or it's like the most negative space you could ever be in but I also knew from like being you know from before in other situations when you know when I started my my record label for example and I made another kind of record than I had done before that was also the same feeling of like you you change something and you don't know how it's gonna you know affect things but at the same time just like before I'm so lucky I had this you know very stable kind of environment to 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 explore things like this in so I don't I think it definitely takes courage to check out so I'm not saying it wasn't a difficult thing but I'm just also aware of what I have that makes that more easy for me like you know I could go to psychoanalysis I begin that costs a lot of money like you know what I mean it's kind of luxury problems in a way but but I think yeah definitely a feeling like I was getting you know older and that I hadn't released a record for like four years you know all that but then when you start working on an album and it's getting closer to finished that kind of disappears it's like when you start actually doing things again and you're active and stuff it's it's you know that's the remedy I remember when you came on my show to to debut um missing you Mm. as a hottest record and it was the first time Mm -hmm. I'd spoken to you in quite a while and it felt like such a big moment because it was it it felt Mm. you know highly anticipated by a a kind of on a global level for for your fans Mm. um and it felt so emotional and and I remember interviewing I remember interviewing you and just being struck because obviously the times that I've interviewed you in the past I'd had a lot more I've spoken to a shitload more people in the time that I'd interviewed you between times Mm -hmm. basically (laughs) and it struck me that you are so you know it you are so honest and you're Mm -hmm. so generous with your honesty as a Mm -hmm. pop star Mm -hmm. there's there doesn't seem to be any barriers um, in terms of what you give uh, emotionally and what, what you know as a as an artist. And it really, really struck me then, having spoken to people night after night after night for five years, or whatever since or four years since the last 
uh, album. I mean, I spoke to you obviously during Le Bagatelle Magic, but mm. it, it just struck me how much you stood out from the crowd in that way as an artist for for really being so truthful um, and expressing that. Mm. When you came back, how did it feel for you? Because you had obviously, and that is a very natural thing, I would say, to to be worried about whether people still cared. But the reaction was huge, like huge. How how did it feel at the time? Well, it's like when you're when you're saying that, like that's like I can tell that I'm or I'm still kind of. Um, amazed by that <laughs> I think I was also when I came and did that interview and I remember doing I was I was so happy to be there and it felt really great to do that with you um and I think I was you know I was just reading the environment real time during all that that whole period I had, I didn't know what to expect at all and I still don't take it for granted like I never take it for granted that people will keep listening or that they will you know because it's such a personal experience how you connect to music. You know, I might think that I've said something that makes sense, but it, that that doesn't mean that other people will. But what I think is such an amazing thing and what makes me really happy is that, you know, when I listen to music that I love, people that have written songs that I can connect to, it's because I know that, you know, they put their finger on something that I felt before and they helped me understand what it was that I was feeling you know that it made me it helped me go like oh I know what that feeling's like I've had it I just didn't know what it was and and I feel like the people that I that are that have supported me over the years in my audience is kind of listening to my music that way and it makes me really happy because it's like something I understand it's how I listen to music and it's amazing to have that connection with the people that listen to what I do when you came back, did you feel that you were stronger? And I don't, I don't mean as an artist, but well, probably as an artist, because you, you obviously always evolve in terms of how you write and how you think about your art. But as a person, like having had those years of strengthening yourself and understanding yourself in that way, did it change how being out there in the public eye, did it change how that felt for you? Yes. I yeah. felt like I could be more integrated, more myself more relaxed maybe also more light like even if I felt like I was you know I felt more like grown up or something you know what I mean it didn't feel heavy it felt light and like I could be more present mm. Mm. the what what so many people say about what you do is the kind of this juxtaposition of of joy and and, and kind of pain in a song mm. um and a lot of your songs seem to be based around the feeling of loss, um, uh, however you want to interpret that. What does singing and writing about loss bring you as an artist? I think, I think that, you know, there are always like things happen in our lives, like whether it's like, you know, your parents get divorced, like the thing we just talked about, or somebody, you know, you break up with someone or you become a parent or like whatever it is yet like you're you're always you're faced I think all people are faced with quite you know like strong moments in their lives where things become very existential I think love is like the most common example it happens to people a few times in their lives 
from when they're very young, it's a point where you like you become aware of like the things having a beginning and an end and all those things. And I think writing about loss is ultimately writing about, you know, even if it's a love song, it's ultimately writing about death. Like we're all going to, you know, we're all going to have to say goodbye to the things that we love, mm. not just, you know, our boyfriend or girlfriend uh, or partner it might be you know your own life or you know like even if you are in a great relationship there's going to be a day where you're going to have to separate it's just like a part of being a human being and I think writing about loss is like a way for me to kind of figure out how to be sensual around that feeling of how to stay close to some kind of sensuality of like dealing with death wow wow <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I am 41. Mm-hmm. And I've found in the last year, maybe since I turned 40, like I've, my, my perspective on life is, I'm such a cliche, mm-hmm. but it's it's changed. It's yeah. properly, properly changed. Yeah. Like I have had I some know. sort of a midlife crisis, right. definitely. Not sports cars. I haven't shaved my head yet, but there's def- <laughs> there's definitely things I've like introduced into my life mm-hmm. and and taken out of my life that it, it, I, I don't know. I just feel like my whole perspective on life has changed quite a lot. And mm-hmm. I know that you and I are roughly around the same age ish. Mm-hmm. Have you felt that? Have you felt a change in perspective in the last little while? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I think th- it's like I don't think that like it's like the last time I'm going to do this or that. I don't think that way, but I definitely think that it crossed my mind more times than before. Like, oh, I wonder how many times this will happen to me again. Okay. Yeah. It's not like you see the end of your life, but you definitely feel like there might be as much of it left as there has already been. I think that's a very kind of, it's like right in the middle of it. And, you know, just even having this conversation with you today, looking at the... uh, the, the kind of the length of your career in terms of every every kind of like you've been there for 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 decades now because you started so so profoundly young mm. what do you want from you know if we're in the middle now what do you want from the second part of your life as an artist what do you want to t- keep doing or have you even thought about that yeah i just want more of the things that i've already done that i like you know, if mm. I can just like make more music, I will be happy. Um, yeah. Make music and like find a way to do it that it feels like I'm supporting of my community. But doing it for a while has made me look like, like I know what I'm good at. Like I know what I, I do really well. I also know what I would just want to leave up to other people that do it much better than me. Um, I'm excited about, you know, the stuff that I'm like getting better at like I'm excited about my songwriting I'm excited about learning more about production but I'm also happy to just like you know really let go in collaborations and like work with people that are better than me I just want to like I just want to keep doing music like I think it's really like one of the most amazing fun things ever in life and I, and I still really do you know it's cool and in terms of change let's end on this one so you have navigated so much very profound change in your life as a person like personally is there more change to come do you think that is is there more in your head uh, that you want to do when it comes to changing 
Oh my God, it's so personal. I don't know how to answer this without sounding so pretentious. Ah! Um, you know, I hope to become a parent. That would be cool. If yeah. I can become a parent, um, I think that's probably going to be like the biggest change uh, that I could make in my life. But I also think that, you know, it's like, seriously, I really don't know if, I mean, it's just such a cliche, but I really don't know if you're ever like, you know, I feel like I'm changing all the time. I definitely feel that. I, I, I also feel like this concept in Zen, you know, the, the Buddhist idea of that there isn't a self is becoming more and more and more true. Like, I honestly don't know who I am anymore, anymore. And I think that that's, it's not in a bad way. Like it's not, yeah. it's not a bad trip. It's more like the, the, the good side of it, which is like, I really don't feel like I have to protect, you know, I have, I have a friend, her name is Jala. She makes music and she's such a cool person. And one of the things that I love about her is that she is, and I don't know if she's aware of this herself, but she's so good at showing people that she, that she's okay with, you know, not knowing what it is that she's doing. Like, I guess letting go of some kind of control. You know, you, yes, you think you yes. have like a person or a self or whatever to protect or to, and especially now with Instagram and all this. But I think the idea of like that there isn't one is kind of interesting. Wow. <laughs> so so just think, being, just being. I don't know. Yeah, whatever that means. But yeah, yeah just trying to be more. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah. Robin. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I I feel like I need a whiskey. I feel like I need to like have I just this has been so deep. I'm I'm drinking so so much alcohol right now. I know my husband is sober and I haven't been drinking at home since he was sober, but I've just had to have a word with him and go, babe, I'm bringing the wine back into the fridge. (laughs) It's on. Um Thank you so much. Mm. I that was just so special. I really appreciate you Thank again. You, Annie. You're just unflailing honesty and sharing so much and I love yeah, talking so to you. It's yeah. so nice. It's mutual. Thank you. <laughs> After having that conversation with Robin that day, I kind of walked around with a smile on my face all day, just grateful for being able to walk down to the end of my garden and speak to someone like that. Um, in such a long and slow and intimate way especially just with the backdrop of corona and lockdown and all the wonkiness and, and feelings of being overwhelmed that that brings it was just so nice to talk about uh, to talk about other things so massive thank you to Robin and her experience of psychoanalysis and her explanation of it I found really helpful and if you do feel like you're in a rut don't feel afraid to try and find a way to have conversations and to really deep dive into your life and draw a map and explore what's underneath the boat of your existence biggest lesson from all of this of course is music you must if you haven't go check out robin's back catalogue her 2005 album robin her three-part project body talk uh so check all three parts one two and three and then her most recent album honey as well gotta go check them she's also just put up a new playlist on spotify inspired by the met gala very fabulous fun playlist that you can go check out if you need a party now if you did enjoy this please go tell your friends write a review on apple podcasts it really helps others find the show um, and obviously subscribe because there's loads more to come 
thank you for your comments as well about last week's episode with Catelyn Moran. Some really funny ones. Uh, shout out to DJ Emma who says this podcast episode was so good. Defo Catelyn Moran needs to write a porn movie for women. It's a must. Um, Laura loved this chat. So many points had her yelling yes in agreement. She says hilarious vindication. And Geho says love the new format. Great first guest. Can't wait for the next episode. So yeah, thank you so much um, for all of your comments. Catelyn was incredible and next week we have someone completely different and it's one of the things I really wanted to do on this new series is trying to speak to people who aren't necessarily in that world of celebrity uh, or who have any sort of a profile Uh, just people who are everyday people who have experienced profound change and one of those people is a young man called Jamar Jonas from South London next week I will be speaking to Jamar all about knife crime and how it's become a huge epidemic across London and our country and what we can do to stop it and how he has been profoundly affected by it so yeah tune in next week for a really interesting and insightful conversation with Jamar Jonas and take care until then Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.